Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Luminarium, the novel by Alex Shakar, winner of the LA Times Book Prize for Best Fiction. It is available now from Soho Press, which has been independently publishing bold new voices in literature since 1986. A partial list of topics explored in Luminarium includes angel investors, brainwaves, briefcases, disaster simulations, Disney World, extreme sports, Hinduism, the Lord of the Rings, magic shows, mini golf, New York, neuroscience, nightmares, Reiki, shoplifting, time, twins, whiskey, and 9-11. Ron Charles of the Washington Post says, quote, Days after finishing Alex Shakar's Luminarium, I'm still stumbling around the house in a mixture of wonder and awe. And Dave Eggers calls it, quote, Dizzyingly smart and provocative, Shakar is committed throughout with trying relentlessly to flat out explain the meaning of life. Named one of the best books of the year by the Washington Post, Publishers Weekly, Booklist, NPR, the Austin Chronicle, and the Kansas City Star, Luminarium is now available in paperback, hardcover, and ebook from Soho Press. Visit SohoPress.com for the full list of reviews and to get your copy. That's Luminarium by Alex Shakar. It's a book. You can read it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is sound waves vibrating in space. These are voices crying out in the mental wilderness. My guest today is David Reese. He is the author of a new book called How to Sharpen Pencils. It is available now from Melville House. It is, uh, and I say this not in jest, a practical and theoretical treatise on the artisanal craft of pencil sharpening. Uh, David is, uh, I think it is safe to say, the world's number one, number two pencil sharpener. And I am honored to have him on the program today. He's a very bright guy, very obsessive, very funny, very intense. And uh, you you may also know him from the pages of Rolling Stone magazine, uh, which has in the past syndicated a cartoon series of his called Get Your War On. So there's plenty to talk about here. And uh, David and I will be in conversation in just a moment. Uh, otherwise, it's been sort of a strange day. It's a little overcast here in Los Angeles, a little bit dreary, 
Uh, I did not sleep well last night. I was plagued, uh, as I often am, by a bit of the insomnia. And uh, I was up for several hours in the middle of the night and then finally fell back asleep at around 4.30 a.m. and uh, slept in past my normal wake-up time. Uh, so everything has now been thrown off by a couple of hours, which, which you know, has an effect on your day. Uh, but what was interesting in this particular instance was how I woke up in the middle of the night. And, uh, you know, I remember uh, last night getting into bed and thinking to myself, uh, oh, you know, I'm very glad to be here. Uh, I'm very tired. I'm very happy to be lying down. And then uh, seconds later, I remember thinking, uh, is the door locked? And then having this kind of weird negotiation with myself, uh, wherein I tried to decide whether or not the door was locked and uh, what to do about it. And in my mind, I was like, I'm 80% sure that I locked it, uh, but not 100% sure. So uh, perhaps I should get up and go check, you know, just to have some peace of mind, uh, which is a little bit ridiculous from a mathematical perspective when you really think about it. Because, you know, like, what are the odds, really, like, what are the odds of somebody breaking into my apartment in the middle of the night on the one night, uh, you know, that I forget to lock my door? And what are the odds on any night, for that matter? And, uh, and, and I wasn't even really sure if I forgot to do it in the first place and, and why, uh, why am I so obsessed uh, and why are we so obsessed as a culture with locking our doors at night? Why is there so much fear in America? What am I so afraid of? You know, if somebody wants to break into your house and they're actually there in the middle of the night with some serious intent, it seems to me that they're probably going to find a way, uh, in which case, uh, what are you going to do? You know, and what would I do about it? Uh, I don't own a gun. I'm not a big gun person. Uh, I do not know karate. And uh, maybe uh, I should have some pepper spray on hand or a baseball bat at the very least uh, under my bed. And uh, and so on and so forth. So this is what's going on in my head as I'm lying there in bed under the covers. I'm finally horizontal. I'm completely exhausted. And uh, I'm working my way through this internal conversation. And ultimately I decide, and I am kind of proud of this, I decided that I'm not going to go lock my door, or, or I should say I decided that I was not going to get up to double check to make sure that I had locked it. I was going to be content with 80% certainty or thereabouts, and I was going to take comfort in the extreme statistical unlikelihood of a break-in occurring at my residence on this particular night or any night. And yes, I do, you know, I do concede uh, that I was leaving myself open to the very slim possibility that there would in fact be some kind of violent intruder entering my residence in the middle of the night and uh, that my failure to lock the door would be a contributing factor to the successful entry of said intruder. Uh, but that was a risk that I was comfortable taking. And furthermore, it was a risk uh, that I felt uh, any rational person should be comfortable taking unless you're living in an area of extreme danger. And if you're not living in an area of extreme danger, uh, then I think you fall into a general category of human beings for whom every day on a uh, basic level is a mild risk. You know, every time we leave the house, we, we roll the dice in, to a certain extent, don't we? And obviously we cannot be expected to act on every single fear impulse. So uh, anyway, what's my point? The point is that I went to bed. I did eventually fall asleep, uh, as I often do, uh, with an iPad on my face. And, uh, I think that my wife removed it eventually as she usually does. And then about four hours later, uh, I had a very vivid dream. It was, it was kind of a nightmare and not a traditional nightmare per se, but a, a scary, 
uncomfortable, disconcerting dream involving a telephone. So I was somewhere and I'm pretty sure that I was at home in my dream. And, uh, and then in the dream, the, my phone started ringing and I answered it and I said, hello. And the person on the other end, you know, on the other end of the line was like, hello, is this Brad? And I was like, yeah, who's this? And the person on the phone was like, this is Brad, this is Brad. And I was like, excuse me. And, and so this person who I now realized was me was like, this is Brad calling for Brad. You like, you forgot to lock your front door. And it was, uh, for some reason, terrifying in the world of my dream. I was terrified so much so that it woke me up. And suddenly I was lying there in the dark with my eyes open, uh, staring up at the ceiling. My heart was racing a little bit. And, uh, when that happens, I can pretty much guarantee you that I'm going to be up for at least a couple of hours. So, uh, what did I do? Well, in the end I got up and I, uh, I walked out to the front door to check to see if it was locked. And when I got there, I discovered that it was indeed locked. Uh, I had locked it. I was, I was correct in assuming that I probably had. And as I returned to my bed, I was forced to confront the fact that my efforts to be rational and, uh, you know, uh, courageous in a minor way had been defeated, had been thwarted by the neurotic depths of my subconscious mind and that my brain, and by that I mean my sleep, had been broken into, in a manner of speaking, by a violent intruder who was me. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Okay, so you were saying that you're staying at the Roosevelt Hotel? Uh, yes, the Roosevelt Hotel on, on Hollywood Boulevard, the Hollywood Boulevard. And uh, I never, this, this isn't my first time in L.A. I've been here a few times before, but I don't remember ever being on Hollywood Boulevard. I thought that Man's Chinese Theater was like way out in the country or something. <laughs> like, I really was not imagining it correctly i feel like it's sort of like this demystification process to see it though because you see you know you hear about it or you see the walk of the stars uh you know on television and you sort of have this idea of all this glamour and then you get there and it's like uh, some guys dressed up like boba fett and there's like a homeless woman like trying to nurse a baby doll or something well, you and I obviously have different definitions of the word glamour. <laughs> because I was awestruck with the with the humanity and the uh, the uh, just all the colors and sounds and wailing. 
that were surrounding the theater. And also they have uh, Madame Tussauds uh, Museum of uh, the Mummy Museum, Celebrity Mummies. And um, I never knew that was was down here either. It's uh, it's overwhelming to me. So what did you do? Did you did you walk around? Did you mix with the people, or were you looking down on it from your like hotel window? No, I went outside and just stood across from Man's Chinese Theater and stared at it. And there was a a guy with no shirt on. He was dancing to loud music and screaming about being sexy. And, uh, and then I went back up to my hotel and tried to take a little nap, but I couldn't <laughs> couldn't shake the energy of the, uh, of the scene at Man's Chinese Theater. It, it intoxicated me. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. So, um, when so the last time you were in Los Angeles, you did not visit Hollywood. Is that it? the last time I was in Los Angeles was last fall, and uh, my writing partner and I had come out to pitch a TV show to some uh, TV. Uh, networks and we stayed at a different hotel. I can't remember what it was called, but it was perfectly cylindrical and it was right off the highway. And that uh, was really interesting. Like right off the four hundred five? Maybe yeah. That, is that your famous highway? Well, there's the four hundred five and then the ten. But I think I know the hotel you're talking about. There's okay. and there's like a restaurant at the top that. There was like a really really dimly lit restaurant at the top, and I get that hotels everything has to be dimly lit, but this was. You, you were approaching like, like maybe they're having electrical problems. <laughs> like it's really hard to physically see my own hands. Yeah, but yeah, it must be the same place. Okay, yeah, because I, I never have stayed there, but I, I did go up there one year. Uh, my wife and I had the idea that we would go up there to watch the fireworks on the Fourth of July. Oh, did that work? It kind of did. That's I mean, smart. There was no central, but in Los Angeles, there's really no central place. So it's like there were just like lots of fireworks going off in like the far distance. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that makes sense. And that was a good decision on your part. Yeah, it was. I thought it was strategically, uh, you know, astute. Yeah, definitely. So um, how did the pitch go? Like, uh, did you did you go do that? Was that sort of like a miserable experience or a positive experience? It was our first time pitching. It was very nerve-wracking. The show didn't get picked up, so I guess we're not very good at it. But uh, it was exciting, you know. Um, yeah, it was interesting. You know, you're just in a conference room with, like, one of those big conference tables that has, like, a weird speaker phone in the middle and then, like, all these just USB ports sticking out of the table like uh, like a weird flower bouquet. And uh, people come in and feign interest while you desperately try to grab money out of their pockets <laughs> yeah i've been i've been in those meetings before yeah but it was a great experience you know and we met some really nice people and uh <laughs> my writing partner and i um we didn't have we had like a lot of downtime in that hotel and we both really liked playing scrabble but we didn't have an actual scrabble board and the hotel didn't have a scrabble board so and neither of us had smartphones, so what we did was we played, like, uh, Scrabble on Facebook, but we only had one computer between the two of us, so we would literally... <laughs> I would log into Facebook, make my play, log out of Facebook, hand the com laptop to my writing partner, who was lying <laughs> on the other bed. He would log into Facebook, make his move, log out, and pass it back to me. 
It was a, it was a profoundly inefficient way of playing Scrabble. It's the old school way. Yeah, exactly. It's the way our grandfathers played. <laughs> have you, when there was only one laptop per village. <laughs> exactly. now, have, you, uh, have you since gotten a smartphone or have you not? No, I still haven't gotten a smartphone. And, and, and I, I actually felt that weird, I don't know, there's got to be a, a psychological term for it or a German word for it. But when you feel betrayed by your buddy when he gets a smartphone... And you're now the only person with the flip phone, the old school flip phone. Right. Because now, of course, he can play Scrabble whenever he wants. It's in his pocket, like, 24-7. Well, no, I have friends who, like, they play constantly. Is it what's it, is it called Scrabble? Or does it's it, not called Scrabble. It's like it's, word games or it's, something. Yeah, right? it's, it's called um, Words with Friends. Words with Friends. I think that's it. Yeah. That's exactly right. They're yeah. constantly. And I haven't, I haven't gotten into that yet. I'm scared that I would get sucked in. Well, you know what? After that trip, in order to play Words with Friends... If memory serves, you have to like download something onto Facebook or do something. And I did it for that weekend because I knew we were going to play Scrabble together. But as soon as the weekend was over, I uh, deloaded or whatever. I got rid of it because I noticed that everyone on Facebook would be able to tell when I was playing Scrabble, and I think they could even see what words I was playing. And it just felt Invasive. weird, yeah. like. Yeah, I didn't. It felt invasive. Yeah, I can't stand it when people can even see that I'm online and then they want to chat with you. It's like it's. Yeah. A, it, I don't like any of that. Yeah. And uh, I, then, like, I didn't realize that Facebook was publishing my phone number. There's a lot of stuff. That's going how on. I called you to set up this uh, this <laughs> interview for real. Yeah. yeah. You just tracked me down. I just called Facebook <laughs> and said, "Who are the good literary podcasters in LA?" And I think it was like two ninety nine to get a list of four hundred thousand names, right. and then. Uh, your phone number was the most pleasing to my eye. I have a really <laughs> refined aesthetic sense when it comes to phone numbers. Are you being serious? Well, I am because I remember phone numbers by their shape. I think a lot of people do this, I, actually. I mean, I mean, exactly the same way. Like, whenever I would sign up for a new landline, it's, I mean, or, you know, it's been years since I got my cell phone number, but I would always ask if I could please choose. Yeah, from a, even a small list, you know, because yeah. I wasn't going to probably pay for like a custom number or whatever. But right. I've always, I would always be like, can I at least have like five to choose from so I could find the right yeah. shape? And ever, and everybody, I think, has an intuitive sense of when they've encountered a really strong phone number. Yeah, like if you're trading phone numbers with somebody, and you're like, ooh, good number, good, yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't, ha- it doesn't even have to be that it's really powerful, like four, five, six, nine thousand. Sometimes it's just the shape. Like when I picture phone numbers in my mind, it's like there's an x-axis and then the the digits extend equally above and below the x-axis um, so that then you have this 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 symmetrical shape along a, along a horizontal symmetry and uh, and the shape can look really appealing. I don't really know how to describe it, but I've always had that ever since I was a kid. And do you think there's like a phonetic angle to it as well? Like the way that the number actually sounds when you say it or you think it? No, because for me it's visual because I'm seeing the number and then kind of like, it's almost like you're seeing the number and then behind the number you're seeing this, you're seeing this abstract shape. It's like a, what's it called? A Rorschach test that you've turned on its side. You've rotated it uh, 90 degrees. And so for me, I don't think it has anything to do with saying the number, unless it's a number that lends itself to, you know, like 5429. Like say somebody has a number like my number is 337-5429 instead of saying 5429. Sometimes those, like when you put it together into a compound word number, it really pops. You know, it has like a good rhythm or something. Yeah. 
Um, what, and what about somebody who like when you meet somebody and you let's say you like them or like there's an, you know, some initial rapport you find like that's a nice person and then you find out their phone number and you find out that they have a bad phone number does that cause you to somehow downgrade <laughs> your opinion of that? no it's not <laughs> no my obsession with phone number shapes and the mnemonics of phone numbers do not extend to actually judging people because most people don't take your initiative most people don't know they even have the ability to choose a phone number yeah so it's like I'm not going to like somebody less because of, like, the color of their hair. Like, they don't really have a choice over it. You know what I mean? So I think it would be churlish to say, well, listen, I really enjoyed talking to you. We have a lot in common. I think we could help each other personally and professionally. Unfortunately, (laughs) your phone number, the shape that I see in my mind when I project it onto the screen is insufficiently dazzling. I will never speak to you again. But I always did love you, Dad. Goodbye forever. Sincerely, your son, who is dictating this letter to his secretary to be mailed to you tomorrow morning. CC Mom. CC Mom. Okay. So uh, let's find out. Speaking of your parents, like, where are you from? I don't know much about you. Oh, I grew up in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, which is where the UNC, uh, University of North Carolina is. Right, yeah. And uh, my parents worked for the university. My dad was the art librarian for 30 years. And my mom was a computer programmer, a systems analyst for the university. My parents moved down to North Carolina from the north. They were transplants, like a lot of people in Chapel Hill at that time. I was going to say, because you don't have like right. the North Carolina accent. I don't have an accent because we did, we, did, we did not speak Southern in the home. We were raised with Yankee uh, Puritan New England dialect. So when you say north, it was New England that your parents were originally from? My parents met in, uh, in Manhattan, actually, singing in a choir in Harlem years and years and years ago. And, uh, but my dad is from Wisconsin originally, from Manitowoc, Wisconsin, and my mom... I'm from Milwaukee. Okay. Now it's about to pop off. <laughs> I was just in Milwaukee. Oh, you were? I was in Mequon. Okay. I was, I was raised in Cedarburg, which is okay, a neighboring yeah. town of, of uh, Mequon. We all flew to Mequon for my dad's 80th birthday because he wanted to celebrate with his older brother who lives in Mequon. And, uh, so we were chilling in Mequon. We went to the museum and... How is that? Milwaukee? Oh, it's fantastic. Oh, see, it's been years and years since collection. I've been. Yeah, it's really, really good. But the building is in, is amazing. The building was in Iron Man. Yeah. No, I'm sorry, Transformers or, 3. Is that what it was? It was, the, it was the office of the bad guy in Transformers 3. Okay. The human bad guy. I don't know if I saw that one. That oh, might have been, after, that might have been really post-baby. a good movie. That's a shame. Um, and then we also went to Manitowoc and went to the Manitowoc, you know, because you know what Manitowoc is famous for is its great cranes, the great red cranes with the orange logo Manitowoc. So we had to go look at the cranes and take photos of the cranes and sure. see the cranes in the crane yard. And some of those cranes are just so massive. I mean, it just boggles the mind how they how they how those cranes can go up so high in the sky and, and lift lift things. It's really cool. So yeah. I like Wisconsin. It's a good state. Have you ever been to the um, America Club in Sheboygan and had that buffet? No. Son. I was, <laughs> I was a young Son. man. <laughs> you, need to, uh, you need to take your family there someday. I it's should. a pretty significant buffet. It is. And I'm speaking as someone who, as I'm fond of saying, my favorite food is salad bars. Oh, really? So, yeah. I know what I'm talking about. How, how big are we talking? We're talking ice sculpture big. Okay. Like the buffet is so big it has landmarks. <laughs> like there's usually an ice Flags. sculpture of a swan. Yeah. Okay. There's like there's like a town square in the buffet. 
with the band play Susa music. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. So how long were you there? It sounds like you got around a little bit for a week. Well, the the America Club buffet was years and years ago. We didn't hit Sheboygan on this trip. This was maybe a long weekend, I think. Okay. Yeah, just uh, get together with the family and hang out in Wisconsin. It's nice. So did you have, a, you have any siblings or were you just a I have a younger brother who came up with his uh, newborn son from Chicago or one-year-old son from Chicago and his wife. So we were chilling. It was fun. Okay. Yeah, it was good family time in Wisconsin. So like normal kind of like, was it sort of Norman Rockwelly kind of family upbringing? Like what was it like in Chapel Hill? It seems like such an idyllic place. It was idyllic. That's a word I've used a lot. Um, my upbringing was really nice. Um, and it's... In fact, when I, I'm on a tour right now, and I was just hanging out with a friend in Austin who I grew up with, whose parents also came from Chapel Hill, and we were talking about how many people we know who, as adults, have moved back to Chapel Hill either to start families or to bring their family to Chapel Hill because I think they want to recapture the the uh, just how how cool it was back then. I mean, Chapel Hill has grown in many ways. And with great velocity in the in you know the twenty odd years since since I left, but I've I've and maybe everybody feels this way about their hometown, but I feel like I was lucky enough to grow up in Chapel Hill kind of during its golden age. I mean, and one and certainly when my parents talk about the Chapel Hill of the late sixties and or, or or the very early seventies when I was when when I wasn't really you know a, a, a a cognizant being yet it sounds really like it was a really special place but i liked it and i like going back i go back two or three times a year i have friends there and your folks still live there yeah they're retired but they still live in the house that i grew up in oh wow yeah. okay so there's been a lot of stability there is like your bedroom still the same you go home and there's like the pennants on the wall and everything or? well um <laughs> first of all i never had any kind of sports memorabilia on my wall ever uh, wasn't really my scene i did have some pretty amazing lamborghini sports car posters on the wall because I went through an, a phase where I was obsessed with Italian sports cars. I had a Porsche. I feel like I had... Like, you literally had a Porsche? No, or you mean a poster? I had a poster. Oh, it's It must be nice. <laughs> oh, I didn't realize we were bragging. <laughs> yeah, I used to have uh, two IZOD uh, uh, button-down shirts. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, I did. Have, I, I feel like I feel like it's sort of like a stock poster. I feel sort of bad about it. Like what you know? Like, was yours the one that was had the whale tail or whatever? You know? Oh yeah, that was a. Big it was deal. like a nine forty four, I think, or the nine eleven. Nine, yeah. 9/11. I thought you were talking about the classic Porsche poster from my youth, which was. <laughs> I haven't thought about this poster in a long time. It was dimly lit. A silhouette of a bottle of wine, uh-huh. a silhouette of a beautiful nude woman, and then a silhouette of a Porsche. And at the bottom it said, decisions, decisions. <laughs> when I was growing up, that was some real grown-up shit right there. Oh, like, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's what being an adult is like, making these tough decisions. Am I going to drink a bottle of wine, watch a naked woman sleep through her bedroom window, or press my face up against the glass of a Porsche dealership? <laughs> Decisions, decisions. It's tough. Yeah. Um, so you had a Lamborghini, though. I was more a Lamborghini man. Um, I felt like, the, well, when I was growing up in the, let's say this, my car phase was in the 80s. And when in the 80s, I felt like the Lamborghini Countach, the really extreme wedge, the, the one that just looks like a series of planes slapped yeah. together. I yeah. mean, planar surfaces, not airplanes. Um, it just had this very brutal, aggressive 
futuristic aesthetic that I really responded to. I always felt like Porsches were too smooth and that Ferraris at that time, they looked a little insubstantial to me in a weird way. I don't know if it was the fascia or just the the silhouette of the Ferrari itself, but they just looked almost like they were made from crepe paper or something, whereas the Lamborghini looked like it was just made out of cement. And I was really attracted to that kind of extreme aesthetic. And in fact, in, uh, in, the, in the pencil book, I, I have a pencil point that I, that I do, and I call it the Kuntash in honor of, in honor. In honor of this, this infamous uh, and extremely... These were not ecologically friendly machines. You no. have to, you have was, to there a, was there a Lamborghini Diablo? Yeah, that was a later model. That was yeah, a later that's, model. That's as, as my interest was fading. But yeah, I think the Diablo was the one that kind of maybe replaced the Countach as like the flagship. Or the it was one. It was like one of the... I mean, I think at the time, because I spent another part of my youth in Indianapolis, and so the, there's auto racing is right. the big thing there. And so one of my... you know, Some guy I went to high school with, his dad had a Lamborghini Diablo. Whoa, what did his dad do? I don't know. They were into auto racing. Like they were part of like the... You know, indie indie car circuit. I, I don't know much about that stuff, but I just remember that like that car was supposedly like the fastest car that like a civilian could drive. Yeah, right. Or something like it's, that. I'm I'm a big fan of like extremes and hyperbole and stuff. And the appeal of those Lamborghinis was always like it is the least efficient vehicle in the world. It is the most powerful vehicle in the world. You can break the speed limit in first gear. Just like all that stuff. When you're a kid, right. you know. And uh, you're just having this quiet life, and like you're not really a bad kid. You're not like really rebelling. Like you just get so fascinated with these things. Like, oh, I wish, you know, I wish a Lamborghini Countach would be my best friend. Like, take me out, and like, like we'd commit crimes. And like, I'm anthropomorphizing the Lamborghini in this instance, but uh, I would also have been satisfied just to have a car be my friend. <laughs> be cool. Yeah, hence your affection for Transformers, perhaps. Yes. Well, my affection for Transformers is is goes exactly this far i appreciate any cultural product that truly underscores how doomed we are as a society and transformers 3 did that for me and so i have grudging admiration for it even though i objectively despise everything about its creation distribution and consumption yeah, I felt the same way about the first one. Like, I, I saw the first one. The second one I thought was just, like, an, a, a terrible movie. It gave me, uh, like, whiplash or something. I just yeah. I felt like it was just, like, I felt like Michael Bay was just, like, sadistically trying to, like... Well, he is a sadist. I yeah. Mean, yeah, that's yeah. the right word. I feel like his aesthetic, and this is interesting, after spending all this time talking about how much I love those brutal cars, he strikes me as his relationship to the audience is one of a sadist. Yeah. He wants to punish the audience for trying to enjoy his movies. Yeah, that's what it felt like. That's yeah. what, but then, like, there was a... Because there's something sort of, like, spectacular about him and about his uh, whole angle on things. I don't know. Just, like, the, sh- the shirts unbuttoned to his belly button and the feathered hair. You know what I'm saying? Like, Yeah, of course. This strange, like, package that comes at you. But then I saw the first Transformers movie, and every scene was like a car commercial. Yeah, it was lit like you know what I'm saying. Yeah, it was yeah. like the golden light, and then like he always has these like, uh, you know, like uh, is gratuitously beautiful the right way to put it. Like the the women are always like you know cherry lipstick, and the, you know it's this whole thing. But I felt like that was in whatever direction or whatever um, aesthetic uh, tradition or uh, pursuit that he was engaging in. Like that to me was like his masterpiece. 
uh, which might. Well, yeah. I mean, insofar as he has an aesthetic or he is an auteur, it seems like he's fully realizing the, the curdled, poisoned blackness in his heart, you know, for the benefit <laughs> of all of humanity. So you have to give him that, yeah, you know? Right. It's like. Yeah. Someday Werner Herzog will make an amazing documentary about Michael Bay. Yes. <laughs> It'll just be so... Yeah, I'll be like first in line to yeah, see that, that one. that be a good one. I would see that too. So what kind of kid were you? Like you were growing up in Chapel Hill. You liked Chapel Hill. You seemed, uh, seemed like you like had a good family situation. But like, yeah. what were you like at school? Well, I went through a couple phases in school. Um, the one thing you need to know me about me as a kid was, and this is probably what people would remember from me, especially in middle school and early high school was I was a horrible bully. Um, I bullied, uh, my, many of my classmates. Um, and, uh, I was, I could be pretty mean. Really? I was also bullied myself, but yeah, there were a couple people who like how, how so can you illustrate the bullying? Well, I can say that in elementary school, there was, there, I had one friend who outside of school was my friend and we would pal around and ride bikes and stuff. But then in school, we had this thing where every Friday we would see how it was, it was, I think two or three other kids and myself, these were all boys. We would play this game. We would see how quickly we could make this other kid cry. I mean, it was, was you know, being a kid can be pretty dark, especially in middle school when your home hormones are going crazy and you're like in this weird in-between phase and you're in your, you feel smart, but you don't really have much autonomy. And so bullying is, is one outlet for all of that aggression and confusion and anxiety. And, uh, so yeah, I was, uh, I, w- I was, a um, an asshole. Uh, bully. Were you good at making people cry? I mean, were you doing these things physically or was it with verbal? No, no, I was never physical. I've only ever been in one or two fist fights in my whole life. Um, it was all verbal. It was just, I mean, this is, you know, this is what bullies do. You find the weakness and then you just exploit it, you know, and you just do as much damage as you can so that you'll feel better. I don't know. It's not, it's not, it's not a great system and putting aside the bullying, I also teased a lot and, 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 uh, I would tease kids a lot, like using humor to make fun of them. And I had a real sobering experience in college where like, or maybe it was even after college. Gosh, I was in my twenties and I was at a New Year's Eve party with all these people from Chapel Hill that I knew. And I saw one of them. This was someone I, this was a woman. I hadn't seen her in a long time. I was like, oh, hey, it's so good to see you. And she was like, yeah, mm mm-hmm. And I was like, what's wrong? We, you know, we used to have so much fun talking about Jesus and the Mary chain, Jesus and Mary chain in civics class. And she was like, you were horrible to me. You teased me the whole time. Like, basically, you made that year miserable for me. And this was the rare instance where I hadn't even been trying to tease a girl. Like, I was trying to relate to her. Like, yeah, we both like weird British bands, you know, who wear black clothes. And, you know, um, and so that was one of those moments where it's like, oh, man, I'm a monster. And, like, I can't even control it. Like, I don't even know when I'm doing it. Like, that was a really bad but didn't people think, I mean, some people must have thought it was funny. I mean, you know, were you doing it maliciously or was you doing it to make yourself laugh or was it a little of both? It's a little bit of both. I mean, that's the thing that I think people don't understand about bullying is, um, at least from my experience, 
like people bully people because bullying feels good. It's exhilarating. It's a feeling of real power. And if you can get other people to laugh, I mean, a bully, there's a, I, my understanding of bullying is kind of like it really happens in a, va- in a vacuum. Like it's a social event. Do you know what I mean? And, you know, I'm sure it goes back to old, old caveman times of ostracizing, you know, Morag because, you know, he doesn't walk. He walks too upright or something. And so everybody <laughs> teases him. What, you know, all that social cohesion theory and stuff. And, uh, but, um, and sometimes you would tease just to get a laugh. But, uh, I think the bullying just comes from, I mean, I think bullying is really bad, especially now on the internet. And it's like, it's, it's breathtaking how cruel kids can be. But that age, I just associate with just like complete upheaval and tumult and like anxiety. And I'm coming, I'm speaking from someone who had an ideal home life. It wasn't like there was any abuse or, or cruelty in my house. Like I had it basically as good as you could get it. And even I still wanted to go out there and tear people down. Right. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. Do you, and how do you process that? I mean, cause like everybody does things when they're young, uh, whether it's junior high or high school or college or whatever it is, but you have these phases, you look back on it. Do you feel guilt about it or do you feel like lesson learned or just this, this is just stuff that kids do or does it actually in some way plague you? A few, I don't know how many years ago, maybe between the last five or 10 years, I was really plagued by it and I was feeling really down about it. And, um, and then at some point, I think I just realized like not to forgive myself because it wasn't like, okay, I forgive, I forgive you, me for doing that. (laughs) But I just had that understanding of like, just just uh, try not to keep doing it. And I still tease people a little too much. Like my default mode sometimes is teasing with people. And why, what is the psychology behind it? I mean, it's like, is it a a distancing device? I think it's a distancing device. Yeah. Um, teasing. Uh, yeah, I think it's distancing. I'm trying to think of specific instances where I've teased like a, like a romantic partner or something. And I think it's, you're letting them know in this really inelegant, obnoxious way, like, hey, I don't, I could take you or leave you. Like, so don't think I'm going to fall in love with you. Because, of course, if you, you know, like, you don't want to be vulnerable because you're a man child. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what about locating? I mean, when you, we, you know, clearly you're good at it if you're doing it a lot, you're practicing. <laughs> Not, well, but I mean, no. were you naturally good at it? And, and when I say naturally good at it, I mean, there are some people who have sort of a preternatural ability to zero in on a person's weakness or to work on them psychologically, like in, sometimes not even without knowing all that much about a person. Like some people are just really good at zeroing in just instinctively or intuitively. Like, right. do you feel like you have some of that? Um, I couldn't hear the last part because your huge fat nose was blocking out your mouth. I'm sorry. <laughs> could you repeat it? <laughs> Yeah, that's unbelievable. And I have a nose thing, too. Right. You know that. Yeah. How do you know that? You just know, man. You just, you just know. know. Yeah. It's freaky. Game, recognize game. That's what I say. Now, now we have to remember, though, and you should... Let's try this exercise. Now, you bully me really quickly. I, I can't do it. Come on. Look, I In my head, it's like that Terminator-style graphic where it's like, 
he could bully me about this. He could bully me about this. Change your body language this way, or else I'll bully you about that. Because I was bullied. I went to soccer camp one summer, and it was horrible. Like, I just got, I just got murdered by these. Ki- I was probably in seventh grade, and they were in ninth grade. And they, I was the only kid I knew at this soccer camp. And they started calling me the. They either called me the goon or the gooch. Like I just like first day of camp. There's our man. We are going to ride him until the wheels fall off. Right. And it was just like, I think after a week, I feigned an ankle injury and had my mom take me to the doctor to get a note to say I didn't have to go to soccer camp anymore. I don't know why it was compulsory or something. Sounds like the IDF. But <laughs> but uh, maybe in Chapel Hill, actually, Youth Soccer League probably is compulsory. Um, yeah, it was just brutal. I mean, so I used to get, I would get teased and bullied too, and it's that type of and I think that's where a lot of I think that's where a lot of bullying comes from. It's like you have to self defense. It's what we call uh, preemptive attack. It's basically what we did in Iraq. Yeah, you know, it's like he looks like a bully. We better bully him before he bullies us. Right. You know. Yeah. So. So, and we're going to get to all that because I want to talk about get your war on and and all that stuff. But mm-hmm. um, just to finish childhood a little bit, like what kind of student were you? You, you seem pretty cerebral. You must have done fairly well in school. Or at least- well, I, I'm the most annoying kind of student, I'm afraid, because I was the student who probably could have done better if he had applied himself, but he refused to apply himself because he was living with a fear that still accompanies him to this day, which is, oh, my God, what if I apply myself? And it's and it's not very good. Like, it's really terrifying to learn your limits. And so the best way to not do that is to, is to feign indifference uh, while being a good enough student that people will think you're smart and tell you you're smart. Like, it's a really morally bankrupt way to get an education. But uh, that's what I did. Okay. So, but you graduated with your head above water and, like, you got, you went to college. Correct? Yes, I was not, I, uh, I was not literally drowned on graduation night, which is what they do to the lower, the lowest quintile of the graduating class. Right, right. Right. Um, but so then where'd you go to, where'd you go to school? After I went to college, yeah. um, I went to Overland College in Ohio. Okay. Tiny, tiny uh, liberal arts college in Ohio. And how did you land there? Man, that was, uh, this will explain a lot about me. I applied to four colleges. I applied to UNC, where I grew up, state school, really cheap. It was like two, two, two dollars to go there if you're in state. I played there as like, that's a school you know you'll get into, you know, whatever. And then I applied early admission, and this is crazy. I applied early admission to Williams College, which is this super preppy, vaguely conservative college in New England because my best friend's older brother went there, and the brochure was just so banging. It was just like the <laughs> nicest college brochure. That's, that's how I chose to go to Colorado. Yeah. I went to Boulder because I was looking at the pictures on a, yeah. on a brochure that was on a girl's desk next to me in Spanish class. True it's story. crazy. I mean, it's crazy how much influence those brochures can have on an adolescent mind. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. I wasn't, like, evaluating their academic program. No, of course not. <laughs> you know? It's just like, this is a good school, and this brochure, like, the paper stock is just, <laughs> mm, like, it's like leather. Uh, I got rejected from Williams, and then I applied to Kenyon College, Yeah, which is, like, it seemed, I was interested in, like, English major, history major, like, some kind of major like that. I wasn't going to do sciences. And 
I wasn't going to get like a football scholarship or anything. And, and, uh, and so I went for a weekend visit to Kenyon College and just had the worst weekend because the two roommates that, that I stayed with, <laughs> they hated each other. <laughs> and over the course of the weekend, they each tried to enlist me in bad-mouthing the other. So one of the roommates, and I remember this very vividly, one of the roommates was a kind of a jock. What, they stuck you with some existing students? Yeah, yeah, that's what they do on a perspective weekend. They just throw you into a dorm so you can see what life is really like. Oh, okay. And uh, one of the guys was a jock in his half of the dorm room. And I mean, literally, his half was covered in Sports Illustrated covers of boxers and also covers from, what's the big boxing magazine? Um, is it called Golden Gloves Magazine? Maybe. Anyway, some covered like no daylight just boxing magazine covers the other guy his his taste ran to monty python so on his wall was a big poster of john cleese doing a silly walkman and uh those guys did not get along and i just left Kenyon being like this is a place where like stuff gets like really creepy and psychological and i had applied to oberlin because my former assistant of my father was had become either an art professor or become an art librarian there. So that was our connection. And so I applied there. And in the end, it was like the other three choices were either unobtainable, unattainable, or completely just not interesting to me. So I went to Oberlin just being like, ugh, this is my, like, this is like... I'm I'm not I don't actively want to go here. It's just that I I put myself in this position by not applying to enough schools. Where now I'm going to this place in Ohio. And <laughs> did you have any fun? Or was it? It like, was okay. It was okay. I was. Um, I I think Oberlin was when I started to have feelings that I now associate with me being an adult and always being a little bit mildly depressed. Not always, but like this kind of real, it's different from the anxieties of childhood and adolescence because those to me were a function of tumult and, uh, forging your own identity and, and establishing who you are in opposition to the world or in, you know, in allegiance to certain parts of the world. And the feelings that I started having at Oberlin we're kind of just deeper and more still and more just like, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but I did have fun and I still have friends from Oberlin, like really good friends. And you said you majored in English and history? No, actually I majored in philosophy. Oh, you did? Okay. I studied philosophy. It became very exciting to me. And I did have one thing at Oberlin, which everyone should have in their life, which is I had a truly great teacher. I had a, a professor who I think changed the way I think about the world. What was the professor's name? His name was Norman Kerr. He was a philosophy professor there. And and uh, he he was kind of like um, a legendary figure in the academic, or in, among the professors there. Because he was, he was, in a way, he reminded me very much of the famous philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein, or what I've read about Wittgenstein, who was a philosopher that I was obsessed with as an undergrad. And that Norman Kerr, like Wittgenstein, for him, philosophy was not an academic discipline. It was a, it was a matter of like spiritual survival. Like these issues must be grappled with. These dilemmas must be resolved. Like what issues? I mean, and that's how a- to live a good life. Right. How to be a good person. 
how to almost this these aren't his words but almost how to honor the advantages you've been given by making sacrifices for the betterment of other people like in a really uh a, a way that becomes that can become very academic but 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 fundamentally is very emotional because you are talking about the oldest questions in philosophy what is a good life and how can I be a good person? So what is a good life and how can I be a good person? Did you come to any, did, did Norman Kerr uh, bring you to any sort of conclusion or well, at least I definitive mean, direction? This is the great irony of, of my education was that, you know, I became a philosophy major and it was during that time that I realized that I no longer believed in God. I grew up very religious. My parents are very religious and very active in the church. And that's, what church is that? It's Episcopalian, the, the best one, the best church. And um, I was very uh, God-centered and uh, very uh, Christian. And um, my parents will have a hard time believing that because I always hated going to Sunday school. But my inner life was very God-centered. Then I became a philosophy major, and then I had the classic existential breakdown after reading uh, Camus, the myth of Sisyphus, like, there is no meaning to life. God is not there uh, to, to provide meaning, and you have, to, you have to create your own meaning, and I'm just some dumb college kid, so I can't do that, so I'm going to curl up in a ball. <laughs> um, so in a way, what happened was this. So I was brought up in a fairly progressive Episcopal church, and my parents are the best kind of Christians in that they take all the stuff Jesus said about being kind to your neighbor seriously. And in fact, they have gotten more liberal as they've gotten older. Um, so they both do tons of volunteer work. They're very active in the church, but not just as a social center for their, for their, for their secular friendships, but also as a, as a catalytic factor in them trying to be good people and make a positive difference in their community. Um, so, and I grew up believing all that stuff. I grew up believing that the cool thing about Jesus was he, he told everybody to give, give away all, you know, take, sell all you have and give it to the poor, right? All that super radical stuff, super radical, all the occupy wall street stuff. You know what I mean? And I found that very inspiring and uh, Norman Kerr, when I was studying with Norman Kerr, and he was a great fan of, uh, of uh, Immanuel Kant, you know, the categorical comparative and this kind of real uh, rules-based, very austere, um, I don't want to say self-denying, but very austere brand of ethics. Like, hey guys, this is real. Like, we are rational beings. We have to do some heavy lifting when it comes to deciding what's a good thing to do. And it might not be fun. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, obviously, I don't live out any of that stuff. <laughs> but, um, but in a way, even though I lost my religion, I found a new language or a new almost theoretical underpinning to continue. There, there was no – it's almost like the metaphysical stuff, the spiritual stuff dropped away. And was never replaced by anything. The ethical stuff and the all, all the norms and imperatives, there was a continuity there. Because whatever I lost when I stopped believing in God, it's like Wittgenstein and Kant were right there. And it, and Those are so, your guys. Yeah, those were – because, I mean, it's like they are like the Lamborghini Countachs of, 
philosophy. I mean, they're coming from very different philosophical traditions, of course, but it's like the most extreme, you know? Uh, I just, I've always just been, I mean, maybe this shows you that I'm not actually very like intellectually rigorous person that I'm always drawn to the extremes. Do you know what I mean? But both in their own way, both those philosophers were pretty hardcore. Like they came up with some ideas that if you took them to their, their limits, your life was going to be very different than the life you had when you started reading them for the first time. Do you know what I mean? Sure. And I'm talking about not even Wittgenstein's actual published work, but just his own lifestyle of grappling with philosophy, first believing that he had solved all the problems of philosophy, so he quit philosophy, like, hmm, that's done. <laughs> I just ended an academic <laughs> discipline with 2,000 years of history. Right. And, you know, and then he goes off and becomes a school teacher, and uh, he's this horrible school teacher. But it's not just that. It was this fact that he, he agonized over this stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, was, it tormented him, a lot of these issues. Do you know what I mean? And, um, yeah, what was the question? My like favorite sports car. Yeah. <laughs> decisions, decisions. No, but it was it was just about like what you know what you ultimately came to. I think you addressed it. Like what uh, Norman Kerr taught you, and like what these philosophers that you um, you know really embraced when you were a student, you know, brought to you. And it sounds like it replaced religion essentially for you, I or think at least it, filled the void of your loss of faith. You know, or whatever. yeah, something like that. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I'm so glad, I'm so glad, even though I hated every minute of it, I'm so glad that I came up in the church because, or the Episcopal church, because the liturgy is beautiful. It's the, you know, and the the King James Bible is beautiful. And just to, to be exposed to levels, to be exposed to that level of language and poetry, to come up with it so you're not even realizing it. Uh, I think it's just such a great, uh, such a great experience. Do you know what I mean? So I'm really grateful to have had that. Um, and sometimes I miss the idea of believing in a loving God that will love you no matter what, you know, and I've always never had a real, I've never really felt like, like I, I envy people who are part of a, part of a parish, part of a church, and they feel a real sense of community. Yeah, I, I, I envy that. I envy feel, that. Yeah. And I think that's common for secular, modern uh, douchebags like ourselves. <laughs> it's like you, I often just feel alienated and I wish that I was, that I was embraced by some, some broad, local, physical community. Right. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. So yeah. I don't have to go out looking for it in the middle of the night on Twitter. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> exactly. You know? Yeah. That's what faith. Yeah. I think there's a lot of that. I think that, um, you know, the, the dogma and the, um, the, the magical realism of religion, I'm not necessarily missing that much, but the community right. aspects of it, I am. And there is an intellectual, you know, there's like an intellectual envy where it would be so nice to have, something like that to like just fully hang your hat on you know what i'm saying with yeah. total with total comfort and belief like let go and let god i just yeah i just can't do it yeah i cannot do it yeah um so like when let's get into your artwork you know and like mm-hmm. how you came to that and then um you know like like i guess uh you know your politics is very tied to um you know what you were doing with get your war on like how, can you talk about the origins of that and what happened and how it developed my politics come from th- my worldview. My politics come from three sources: my parents slash religion, the Minutemen, Southern California punk rock band that I got obsessed with in the '80s, and they were very left wing, very political, and and Norman Kerr, 
and and the study of ethics. And there was a con- again, it was just a continuity. For me, the most amazing thing about being exposed to the Minutemen was there. You know, they were just like this uh, stripped down, super creative punk rock band, and um, but they sang very explicit songs about like Reagan's policy in Central America because they were. In Central America, like they were recording during like the Contra Wars and all that stuff, and the, uh, Guatemala and things like this. And again, it was this amazing continuity where, because I had been hearing about this stuff, like the like the Central American stuff, like reading brochures in my church where nuns were getting murdered or something, and and you know, certain progressive parishes wanted to uh, support the Sandinistas, right? And so it was so amazing to then find these same issues being addressed from the same political p- perspective but using a completely different vocabulary going from the going from the language of religious discourse and like progressive christian politics and kind of like a christ-centered ethical vision to these guys yelling about it using bad language with like really not abrasive but not church-like music sure uh which kind of like it was, so then I was kind of like oh like it's okay to listen to this music like like these guys are obviously good guys they're singing about the stuff that we talk about in church and that was kind of my entree into um, like different modes of expression yeah I think so and then this and then again the transition from from that language from the language of punk rock to the language of like the super technical highfalutin language of like. Uh, you know, can't or something like that. And yeah, so, I find that stuff's hard to read. I mean, did you, unless I'm not reading the right stuff, like I've picked it up before. No, here's the best sentence I ever read about Kant in some encyclopedia of philosophy, and I'm paraphrasing, but it said something like, his famously turgid prose gave no inkling of the world-destroying thought that lay within. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. heavy. Yeah. Um, no, it's really hard to read. Yeah, yeah, of course. But that was a great thing about this professor. He explained it. Right. And that's when I learned the beauty of really, truly understanding something is when you can explain it to anybody. Well, that's you right. You have that level of understanding and you have that confidence with with the real, when you can, this is like an overused phrase, you can really drill down and really explain it to people and to be in the experience of being confused by something and then have somebody explain it to you is super exciting sure yeah especially when you can tell it's something important yeah you know not dumbing it down breaking it down yeah like that's an important that's 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 the real like the real mark of mastery is to say complex things in a simple way and not complex things in a complex way exactly you know i concur absolutely with your previous statement pursuant to the conversation (laughs) which we are engaged Um, so get your war on. So like, uh, can you tell me about that? Sure. I, um, let's see. I had, uh, been making cartoons, uh, about karate fighters and office stuff, just like really silly apolitical cartoons using clip art and profanity. And where did you get the clip art from? Like where do you found it online or just found it in like Microsoft PowerPoint? Like I just use whatever I could find. Okay. Yeah. And, um, I started doing all that stuff at temp jobs when I had nothing to do. And then uh, I was living in New York on 9-11, and there was these 9-11 attacks, and, um, you know, it was really scary, anxious time. Where were you? In Manhattan? In Brooklyn. You were in Brooklyn? Brooklyn, okay. yeah. 
Uh, I think they're now calling the neighborhood Gowanus, but when we lived there, it was in the shadow of the BQE, beside a tire shop. Upstairs from the tire shop, they told us the day we were leaving the neighborhood, was a functioning brothel. <laughs> um, so uh, it felt very immediate to me. I mean, it felt very removed and very immediate simultaneously, right? And then, um, you know, it was obviously like we were declaring a war on terror. We're going to be going to war with evildoers. We're about to start bombing Afghanistan. There was this huge uh, famine. There were famine conditions in Afghanistan. There was a lot of concern. There was going to be like this huge refugee problem and mass starvation and stuff. And uh, and uh, I just started making this comic. The, the original goal of Get Your Warren was to make the comic that I wish I would just open up the newspaper and see in between like Mary Worth and Marmaduke. So that's why I did the three-panel form, which is like a classic, boring soap opera comic strip. The kind you hate as a kid, right? Brenda Starr, right? Or whatever. You yeah. know, it's always just people talking on a phone, right? Tell Marcy is she still bringing her casserole? Yes, I hope Tony won't be there, and that's it for the day strip. <laughs> you know, and then it's like yeah. senior citizens will read it for four years. I never understood yeah. it. The pacing is so unusual. Looking back on it, that type of reading and that slow labored uh, plot is that will be completely alien to people a hundred years from now. Oh yeah, you know what I mean. Oh, it's already. I yeah, mean, you know, yeah. it's so interesting. Talk about slow food. So anyway, uh, yeah, I just made the comic and sent it to my friends, and then it was just one of those internet things. It went around, and um, yeah, I did it till Bush left office. Yeah, yeah. And then um, what about wasn't it Rolling Stone? Rolling Stone ran it for a while. They picked it up after a while. How did they pick it up? Like how did that happen? They, um, gosh, what happened? I think they did a profile of some political cartoonists, and I was included in it. Okay. And uh, But where would, where would they have seen it? Like, was it just up on the web on a website? And- yeah, it was on my website. It got a fair amount of media attention. I published a book and toured around the country for the book. There was a press in Brooklyn called Soft Skull Press, and they put out a collection. Sure. And it was kind of a, a big seller. And uh, so it was getting some attention, and then I think that's why Rolling Stone wrote the profile, I, th- I think. And then... Uh, they said, oh, well, why don't you make a comic for us? And well, so, it was a ripe time for, I mean, it was a ripe time for satirists and comedians and political cartoonists, I would imagine. I mean. Yeah, it was, uh, it was one heck of an administration, which <laughs> administration. Yeah. And uh, there was a lot of, there was a lot of activity going on. Uh, a lot of uh, what we call unstructured free play in the <laughs> teaching world <laughs> uh, that they engaged in. And um, I think that comic "Get Your War On" was one of the was was one of the early comics to really be openly skeptical about the war on terror. Um, and so I think I, this is going to sound weird, but I think in a way, like that was my foothold, and then people started following it just because it was one of the first ones. Because I started like uh, a month after nine eleven. Yeah, and. Um, the tone obviously was was very profane, very emotional, and um, was it therapeutic? Initially, it was absolutely the first the first night when I made the first comics, which were about bombing Afghanistan and the idea of a war on terror, was um, was one of the was one of the most satisfying like uh, creative things I've ever done. Like, I wasn't crying or anything, but it was because this is what it was. I had never made anything really political before, 
and he, like I was making cartoons and they're just goofy, you know, and, and I like them. Like I stand behind my new fighting technique is unstoppable, especially, I don't think I'll ever top that. Um, but, but I had always admired people who had made political things like the Minutemen, that political punk rock band I was telling you about and other political musicians or, you know, whatever. And, but I always told, I always thought like, I would never be able to do that. Like, um, it just wouldn't work. I couldn't do it. I'm not engaged enough in the world. And then when I made those first comics and they were so satisfying to me, it was really, uh, it was a really powerful, it was a really cool experience. Like, um, and then when they took off, that also was really, was really cool. Um, yeah. So was there ever, was there ever any talk of like, uh, I guess like a, a cartoon like that getting syndicated in mainstream newspapers and stuff like that? Like, no, I self-syndicated. Most alternative political cartoonists these days self-syndicate. They don't work with, with syndicates anymore. So what, is, and what does that entail? Like that self- entails you contacting alt-weeklies or having them reach out to you and you sending them the comic individually and oh. invoicing them individually. You act as your own syndicate. Oh, Tom, okay. Tom Tomorrow is a, is a great contemporary political cartoonist who's had great success doing that. It's a lot of work, but the syndicate doesn't take a cut and you can uh, just do whatever you want. But I never really had that. I was always in a handful of alt-weeklies. But because of the language and because it was the images are basically the same thing over and over again, and because as the years went on, it got less and less interesting and more and more didactic as I started to lose my mind. Uh, you mean as the administration progressed through eight years? That kind yeah, of, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it was just like, there's no end. Like, like nothing is ever going to change. It's the same jokes over and over again. We're making the same mistakes over and over again. How many different ways can you say America is doomed? You know, some people have many ways to say it, but I have a limited vocabulary when it comes to national nihilism. <laughs> so, uh, pencil sharpening. Yeah. How did that come about? So I quit cartooning. You quit altogether? Well, I quit, I quit get your warrant. Yeah, yeah. And that was the only cartoon I was still doing with any regularity. Okay. And then I kind of just floundered. I didn't have any money. Uh, my wife and I split up. And then I just got a, I, I needed money. And my friend said, why don't you go work for the census? Because this was in 2010. You know, they do the census every 10 years. Like, go just go get a job knocking on doors. It pays, I think it paid $14 an hour. It's like, I'll do it. I'll do anything. So I took the aptitude test and I passed the aptitude test. And, um, and then on the first day of staff training, we all had these bags with all our equipment in it, like all the forms and stuff we were going to fill out, like paper clips and stuff. And then in the bag, it was like this little pink uh, single-blade pocket pencil sharpener. I didn't know what it was. I think I thought it was gum or something. Like somebody left a piece of gum in my senses back. Like, <laughs> we are not off to a good start. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then there were pencils in the bag because it's, we, you know, the forms are filled out in pencil when you go talk to the people. And the staff trainer was like, okay, next, because he's reading a script, because all census trainers across the country are reading the same words, like, okay, now you will find in your bag two pencils and a pencil sharpener. Please sharpen your pencils. And we're all like, all right. <laughs> so we're standing around sharpening our pencils. And uh, I, was, I hadn't sharpened a pencil in a long time. I was in a really weird place in my life. I was having a lot of fun sharpening the pencils. And I said... I'm going to figure out how to get paid to sharpen pencils. <laughs> That's what you had. That was the epiphany. Yeah. And you I did think it. I went home that night on Facebook and said, I sharpened pencils today for the census. It was so fun. 
I should, I'm going to start a pencil sharpening business. And then, uh, you essentially have, uh, not only have I essentially done it, I've literally done it. <laughs> I've done it in its essentials and in its particulars. There you go. Yeah. In fact, last night in Salt Lake City at a reading, I sharpened my 500th pencil. Huh. Yep. And was there a cake or? No, I didn't. I, it snuck up on me because I have a log where I record all the pencils that I've sharpened. And um, I knew I would hit it on this tour because I've been sharpening pencils after the book signing. And uh, I was like, oh, man, I sharpened one guy's pencil. I was like, oh, the next pencil's pencil number 500. <laughs> and then this this is really cool. This guy was like, I'm, I'm going to have it done. And then he introduced himself, and it turns out he's this cartoonist that I really admire. So it was like a pr- Adam Coford. Um, he does this series of Lolcats cartoons. It's really funny. And so it was so cool to meet this guy who I had admired and to have him be the guy who got my 500 pencil. That was a really cool moment. So what kind of pencil uh, sharpener uh, do you prefer? Do you like a, a manual or an electric? or um, like what, do you, what do you recommend? Well, as to electric sharpeners, I would refer you to Chapter 13 of my book, which 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 uh, instructs the reader as to their proper use. And I will say only that it involves a heavy mallet. Um, manual sharpeners in my toolkit, I have about 12 pencil sharpeners in there, and so different pencil sharpeners produce different types of points, and different types of points are appropriate for different types of people, or whatever their use, whatever they want to make. Whatever, however they want to use the pencil, I should say, that will determine what it looks like or, you know, the quality of the point. And so I'll do anything from use a box cutter or a pocket knife to sharpen a pencil. And that's great because there's no mistaking a, a, a pocket knife sharpened pencil for an electric sharpened pencil. The, the, the exposed cedar, the cone of the pencil is just going to have this certain... Uh, brutish quality that you're not going to get with a with an electric device, and you have more control over the shape of the point using a single blade. But on the other hand, I also still like the classic pocket sharpener, the one that gives you the ribbon of shavings. You know, yeah. In my business, I bag and return the shavings along with the pencil to the customer, and so a lot of people like those pencil sharpeners because that's the iconic memory they have of those types of those types of sharpeners are that, that like the apple peel. So you really are sharpening pencils for people, or is this just on your tour? No, I've done 500 pencils. I made thousands of dollars through my website, artisanalpencilsharpening.com. Wow. It's a real thing. And people send pencils into you and say, sharpen these. Yeah. I mean, I, I wish that happened more often, frankly. Usually I just supply the pencil. I send them a yellow number two pencil that I've sharpened. But every so often, people will send in an old, beloved childhood pencil. And that I love. I used to have favorite pencils. I mean, you, of course, yeah. yeah. You had favorites. Yeah, yeah. So are you are you like a number two guy or do you have I only do number two pencils. That's I it. I specialize, yeah. I don't do any other types of pencils. And but I mean as far as like usage goes, like do you have like a go to and like a go to point and a go to type of pencil? You mean for my own use? Yeah, for your I own. I don't really use pencils. Oh you don't. Well I'm left handed and if you're left handed you get your side of your hand gets really smudged up as the graphite smears across the page against your sweaty hand. Oh, okay. So I'm not a huge... I mean, I'm definitely using more pencils now than I used to just because they're lying all over the place, all around my house. And if I have to jot something down and I just reach for a mark-making stick, more often than not these days, it's a pencil. But um, my golden age of pencil use was elementary school. I mean, I was just burning through pencils because I was drawing all the time. I was making graph paper mazes. I was 
doing homework all the time. I mean, I was just murdering pencils left and right. But uh, that tapered off as I entered adulthood. Maybe that ex- maybe that corresponds with that depression I was talking about. <laughs> maybe it's time to go back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, uh, it's been great talking with you. This is very fascinating. And uh, congrats on the book and congrats Thank on you. Uh, the tour and congrats on the, the pencil sharpening. Thank you. 18 chapters of pencil sharpening. Didn't think it could be done, but I did it. <laughs> you did it. All right, man. Best of luck. Thanks. Okay, you guys, there you have it. That is David Reese. Go get his book. It's called How to Sharpen Pencils. It is out there. It is available right now from Melville House. You can find David online at MNF is in Frank, TIU.cc. And you can also learn more about his robust new business venture at Artisanal Pencil Sharpening. Com. He can be found on the Twitter at Let's Get Short. There is also a Facebook fan page for the book, so go check that out. This show is on the web at otherpeoplepod.com. It's on the Twitter at otherpeoplepod. I'm on Twitter at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook presence. And if you want to email me, tell me a story, complain about something, and so on, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. And hey, if you like the program and you want to do me a small favor, go over to iTunes and go into the iTunes store and search for Other People with Brad Listy. And when you see it, click on it and then rate it and review it. Give it a nice rating. Write a nice little review. It really does help the cause, and I would greatly appreciate the two minutes of your time. Uh, thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And thanks once again to today's sponsor, Luminarium by Alex Shakar, winner of the LA Times Book Prize in Fiction. It is a novel. It is now available in paperback, hardcover, and ebook formats from the good people at Soho Press. Be sure to visit them at sohopress.com to learn more about one of the most critically acclaimed books of 2011, which the LA Times calls, quote, brilliant. That's Luminarium by Alex Shakar. It is available now. Get it, read it, hold it, travel with it, move around in space with it. Uh, wave it overhead, use it to win friends and, you know, and influence people, etc., and so on. So, uh, otherwise what to say, uh, you know, I remain a bit disappointed in my subconscious mind, obviously. And, uh, and the simple fact that it, it couldn't just leave well enough alone, you know, on the one hand, I did have the willpower to stay there in bed and not get up and go check to see if the door was locked. Uh, but my subconscious mind refused to let it be. You know, it refused to let sanity prevail and uh, it refused to allow me, most importantly, to enjoy a peaceful, uninterrupted night of sleep and instead chose to torture me in my dreams, which feels like a dirty trick. And that's really what I'm saying. Uh, I couldn't stop myself from driving myself crazy. Even when I go to sleep, this happens. I call myself on the phone, on the phone in my dreams in the middle of the night just to fuck with myself. And when you realize something like that, uh, it can be a little bit deflating. So anyway, uh, please remember that Martha Washington could barely read or write and that Leopold Bloom is five feet nine and one half inches tall. I will be back again soon with another program for you. Thank you very much for tuning in. Seriously, I appreciate it. And thank you for spreading the good word. Uh, Okay, I'll talk to you again soon in your dreams. I'll call you. (laughs) 